Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We've got a system now that delivers more news and information and fake news and advertising than we've ever had before. Well, we've all been pushed around. Hello and welcome to It's Complicated with me, Tanya Gooden, the podcast to help you untangle your relationship with your phone. Because we've all been pushed around. This is a podcast about learning to live healthily and happily with technology and the digital world and understanding why sometimes it's so hard to do. Because if we learn how to step away from our phones more, we'll be learning how to step in more to our lives, improving our relationships, our work and our health. I'm your host, Tanya Goodin, author and founder of digital wellbeing movement Time to Log Off. Each week I'll be asking a new guest what they've learned about the relationship with the tiny tyrant in their pocket, their smartphone. So I've got a slightly different format for you for the podcast this week. Instead of talking to someone about their personal digital habits, we are going to be mining the brains and knowledge of an expert in one specific area. And that area is news, or rather fake news. And it's a subject that I have really wanted to tackle ever since launching the podcast. I think it was on my top 10 list of topics that I wanted It's Complicated to cover. We've known that there's a problem with fake news, I think, since the 2016 US elections. But actually, it's really important right now that we think about this issue because... The World Health Organization have said that they've been fighting an infodemic as much as a pandemic during the coronavirus pandemic. And that's because we've been flooded with misinformation and disinformation online about the virus, around fake cures, around where it comes from, around who might get it. And that has really impacted on doctors and health authorities' abilities to actually treat patients effectively. So it's not an exaggeration to say that fake news is life-threatening. So I needed to find an expert and I have found for you probably the world authority in this subject. So I'm chatting today with Emily Bell, who is Professor of Professional Practice at the Columbia School of Journalism 
and she's also the founding director of the Tao Centre for Digital Journalism, also at Columbia. Before that, she actually spent the majority of her career at Guardian News and Media in London, and she was editor-in-chief across Guardian websites and director of digital content for Guardian News and Media. So she is undoubtedly the authority in digital journalism. And I wanted to chat to her about the relationship between technology platforms and news, between social media platforms and news, how we're now getting our news, where we get it from, and really importantly, how we can make sure that we're fighting against the tide of fake news. What is it that we need to do online to make sure we get the news we need from trusted and verified sources? And she's actually got some really practical tips for us, some of which I'm already using as a result of speaking to her. One thing I should say is that this interview with Emily was recorded before The Guardian very sadly announced 180 job losses in London And I think it just makes the conversation even more topical and the subject even more important. If we want to continue to get trusted news from quality news sources, we need to think how we're supporting that journalism, both online and offline. So I think this is a really fascinating area. I also think it's a really important area and it's something we all need to take seriously. And I hope you enjoyed the chat with her. So, Emily Bell, welcome. Yeah, <laughs> welcome. Oh, yeah. So it's complicated. I thought I would just up front be really honest with everyone listening and say we've actually known each other a really long time. Full disclosure, 30 years. Oh, my God. It's a long, long time. So, And actually, this is the first time we've properly spoken for a long time as well. But I've been desperate to get you on the podcast since I launched it last year. To talk about the kind of the state of the news, really, which is, I know, <laughs> such a tiny, such a, a tiny yeah, subject. Okay. But actually, I wanted to start out by, you know, reflecting where we are at the moment in the middle of a pandemic. Well, we hope, don't we? We're at the tail end of a pandemic, or maybe we're at the end of the first peak of a pandemic. But I was really struck by how much news has been an issue during this pandemic. And I remember reading, I think the DG of the World Health Organization said way back in February, we're not just fighting an epidemic, we're fighting an infodemic. And he talked about the fact that we're struggling against fake news that was spreading faster and more easily than a virus. So I feel like fake news has become one of those terms we just kind of drop into the conversation and we laugh about it and various high profile people tweet about it. But how long has fake news been a problem and why is it particularly a problem during the pandemic? Uh, that's a great question. So first of all, the term fake news itself is very contentious. I have academic colleagues who say we should never use the term because it can be weaponized by people like uh, not least the President of the United States yeah. to undermine things like the freedom of the press. I don't agree with that, actually, and I'll tell you why, because I think that the term fake news became popular after the 2016 election 
because actually a lot of it was referring to things that were genuinely fake news sites. In other words, articles that you might see on the internet saying the Pope has endorsed Donald Trump that looked like they came from bona fide uh, news outlets, but they were in fact completely made up and the outlets were made up and they were put on the internet either by people who had a political motive, like the Internet Research Agency in Russia, which uh, does a lot of sort of what we call influence campaigns, or just by grifters who could make this type of content go viral and actually make money on the back of it. So it's popularised and it's been it's been a problem for longer. But I think the reason that it really exploded and the reason people use the term and the reason that I'm not quite as anti the term as some people is that I think what it really demonstrated is that there have been a whole set of different things happening to our information environment, right? So, so, so one of them has been, say, the rise of, we might think of them as social platforms, but let's, for argument's sake, set, call them advertising platforms. So, yeah. you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, YouTube, etc. So that's, that's one thing. The second thing is that, you know, the, the mechanics of those advertising platforms is really to get people to create content, to post it, and then to track people's behavior and target advertising to them on the basis of their behavior. So this sort of nano targeting means that you can then more or less, you know, if I wanted to advertise to you, Tanya, I probably could do on Facebook, I could probably find you and exclude everybody apart from a really tiny handful of people if I knew enough uh, demographic information about you. And we we leave our demographic information all over the internet, mm. so it's not that hard to do. So that's new, right? So so this idea of sort of kind of targeting these different messages. So a sort of what happened was we've got a system now that delivers more news and information and cruft, as I like to call it, and false <laughs> information and influence campaigns and fake news and advertising, whatever else you want to call it, than we've ever had before and targeted more precisely than we've ever had it, had it targeted before. And on the receiving end of that, us, the general sort of audience and population, have less idea really about why we are seeing the news that we're seeing and how it might have got to us and who is paying for it to reach us, whether it's in good faith, whether it's accurate, etc. So a lot of it really comes from, you know, the, the, the design of the social platforms and their advertising, you know, the, the underlying mechanics of their advertising. But it's not new. There is a before and an after. There's a before the real-time social web where we all know about urban myths and we all know about things that are not true but they you know they they circulated at a much lower intensity and they kind of circulated in 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 sometimes sort of more or less harmless ways but it's after really the rise of the real-time social web and this micro-targeting and use of the advertising platforms to disseminate all kinds of messages not just ads for you know kind of good faith products that's landed us where we are. So you would know this, I'm sure, better than me, but what percentage of us now are getting our news essentially from those social networks rather than what I would call, and I'm using my fingers, traditional news sources? Well, it's an interesting one, actually. The the pandemic has changed this a tiny bit in that we've seen more people going back to getting their news from one or two or three trusted sources and avoiding the intermediation of the web. But 
in every single sort of country surveyed in a recent Reuters Institute for the study of journalism report, more than half of the population said that they got their news from the online source. Now, in the US, Pew has been, uh, which is another research centre, has been keeping a fairly close eye on this, and it's shown that around 70% of the adult population of the states uses a social site, usually Facebook or YouTube. YouTube is actually a really big player on this, in this yeah. even though we mostly talk about Facebook. And, and they use that as, a, as at least a news source and not often a primary news source. So, you know, you might be, there's an interesting sort of question here, which is, you know, if you read an article from The Guardian or The New York Times and you read it on Facebook, are you reading? Oh, where are you getting it from? Where are you getting yeah. it from? Who's, who's yeah. you, you, know, you know this because you're an expert in this area, but, but whose customer are you at that yeah. point? So, so some of it is a little bit difficult, but I think it's, it's fair to say that I think in most countries now, where, particularly where mobile phone penetration is high and broadband is high, um, the majority of people now get their news through some kind of social app or at least part of it through some sort of social app. So it's interesting. I watched a webinar from Oxford, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, where the Reuters Institute was saying that those during the pandemic, they found that people who got their news from independent sources were much better informed. So it did seem that the social platforms were really driving the infodemic and that you've split it into kind of two areas. There's what's happening with the platforms and then there's what's happening with us and our consumption. But looking at the platforms, how much are they actually responsible for this? How much are they incubators for fake news? Well, I think that they're largely responsible because I think they designed products without thinking through what the consequences were. So I think there are several dimensions where you can actually say they are pretty squarely to blame. First of all, they just didn't steward their platforms properly. So the fact that you had advertisers in the 2016 election cycle targeting voters in America with rubles from Russia, and and you didn't even think to look to say, wait a minute, maybe this, maybe does this look like election interference? So first of all, you know, there, there were really sort of there was a kind of a don't ask too many questions attitude in the platforms before, yeah. and I have to say that a number of us, and and you know, I've I've been saying this for a while in the realm of journalism, certainly since all two thousand and thirteen, two thousand and fourteen. Other academics, you know, before that sort of have been talking about, you know, really the sort of the, the power and the influence of these platforms and how unchecked and unregulated it was. So, first of all, they put no guardrails in. The yeah. second thing they did was they designed a system to collect information about us, which incentivized fake the advertisers. Or- yeah, yeah or, well, well, actually, but, but incentivized a particular type of content. So, you know, many studies over many years have shown that what the, what we call the most engaging content and engaging is also a bit of a misnomer. But this is these are pieces that people share or yeah, like and get a reaction yeah. and get a reaction. Yeah. And what you have to remember is that every t- a like and a share on a social platform equals money. You know, if you just read something, if you don't touch it, if you don't share it, if you don't like it, it is worth less money to the platform. Yeah. So what they really want is you to like and share things. And the things that are liked and shared more than anything else are things that make people angry. 
yeah. more than things in general things that provoke a strong reaction rather than a weak reaction are liked and shared more but anger is the primary driver for interaction with that type of content so if that's how you've designed your system to work and don't forget that we see things because algorithms which are basically recipes based on the data that we give facebook or google or those algorithms will then decide what we should see next often based on our prior behavior so if you're seeing a ton of things that may make you angry or that you you share saying this is outrageous etc you you will see more of the same it's not very sophisticated to be honest with you everyone talks about this as if it's some sort of you know amazing kind of you know powerful magical kind of artificial intelligence it's actually fairly crude and it's why we're followed around the internet by ads for things that we've already bought. Yeah, the same bought. dress that we once looked at. <laughs> we have no intention of buying. <laughs> so this, that they built these reinforcing cycles. And at no point did they stop and say, if there were really bad actors, so if those, and if those bad actors were governments, yeah. <laughs> how might they use this? Or if they did think that, or if they had policies which sort of internally that looked at that, they chose to ignore them because it was just too lucrative to pay attention to them. And I think they also didn't really think about or didn't think through what the ultimate sort of democratic kind of effect would be if you had politicians who could not just sort of speak to this huge audience, but target them almost individually. So I like, I hate the idea of, you know, the sort of Nick, Sir Nick Clegg, who is now the you know, he's the former deputy at Facebook, yeah, and now the head of communications at Facebook. So they use rhetoric like saying, "We believe that everyone should hear what politicians should have to say." But then you look at Donald Trump's campaign in the last election cycle, so in 2016, and he issued something like 55 million different advertisements. So those are subtly 55 million. Yeah. So sometimes the content can be the same, but the, you know, the, the direct on them might be slightly different. Colours might be slightly different. There are yeah. subtle variations. We, we did some research at the Tower Centre where one of my research scholars took about a terabyte's worth of data out of WhatsApp groups in the Indian election, which is about a million messages. And we used neural networks to look at, you know, how Modi was Nahendra Modi was 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 talking to the electorate, <laughs> and it's the same thing. Which is, you know, if you are addressing people in rural areas, you have the same image as you have going into urban areas. But one message is about the price of milk, and the other message is about Muslims and mm. uh, how you don't want people living next door to you. So, so that type of sort of whispering, whispering electronic lies into your ear <laughs> is effectively what targeting ca- can get you. And that's what sort of politicians use. And that's what, you know, kind of governments use. It's what advertisers use. So you might say, well, that's advertising. How does that relate to news? Of course, news, you know, any Facebook only sees content as as one thing. So if you pay to promote a piece of writing from, you know, the Times, it looks like an ad to Facebook. Yeah. So, so it doesn't look any different to, to anything else. It's classified as an ad. If you write something that looks like an article, um, behaves like an article, and you even sometimes call it news media property, and then you pay to promote it, it still looks like an ad. So, so you have this sort of system, and apologies for the long explanation, but it's one of those things where 
when you follow the logic through to it, there's always an aha moment, which is, so you have this machine which is serving you kind of things that make you angry or stir a reaction. It doesn't know the difference between a piece of advertising, a piece of editorial. It doesn't know who's created it. All it can see is how people are reacting to it and whether or not somebody's paid to promote it. And then the sort of the, the outcome of that is that if you are a real news organisation and you have to pay reporters, so when people sort of, you might think of news organisations as being all sorts of things, but I want your audience to think about them as places that employ people who go out and find things out for themselves and do yeah. investigations, speak to other people, collect documentation, verify what they're doing and 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 write up or film or record pieces and post them on the internet that's not just like, printing press releases which is the cheap way of producing news. yeah not just yeah. printing press releases not just pressing a button to automate hundreds of thousands of articles about press releases but actually doing what we call original reporting that's yeah. a really expensive business it's and, and it doesn't always yield results and the things that it yields are kind of interesting usually important not very what the social platforms would call engaging. You know, a story about your local sort of council might be incredibly important to you, but it's not that interesting to the Facebook algorithm. So at the same time as making this enormous sort of turbo-powered line machine work, all of the advertising is a very sort of effective advertising kind of machine. So, so, so all of the money that was previously supporting things like local reporting started to accrue to Facebook and Google, who have a total sort of duopoly over what we call mobile advertising and, and, and largely a duopoly over all digital advertising. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That meant that actually those real news organizations just couldn't afford reporters anymore. So, so you have you have two sides of the ledger here. You have an you have a, a an incentive system for crappy, terrible content. I'm not going to call it news. And on the other side, you have a, a sort of nothing that's counteracting it. So, in other words, you're, you're starting to lose the things that people might find important or interesting from organisations that don't have any money anymore. So I'm feeling a little bit hopeless when I'm listening to all of this, Emily, because I'm thinking, how do we ever get to the truth? If if we've got a situation where, you know, local news is dying, journalists are expensive, we've got these monopolies that are dominating the news. I read somewhere that there are over a billion bots from essentially Russia and China, who are capable of pumping out far more news than you know CNN and BBC can online put together. How can what can we do as users to get to the truth? How can we how can we make sure we get the news we need? So human beings are ingenious, and they are also focused largely, though not in, not exclusively, on self preservation. And I think what the coronavirus pandemic. COVID-19 has given us is, you know, a, a, a sort of a shocking, uh, the biggest story ever. I was talking to some journalists yesterday, including my friend Chris Moran, who's head of editorial innovation at The Guardian. And Chris was saying, this is just the biggest story that we will, we've ever covered. It's the biggest story since World War II. It's bigger than 9-11. It's bigger than everything else rolled up, put, put into one. And we don't really know how it's going to end. No. And people have really wanted to know what's going on. So the first thing is to say that even though it's very difficult to actually pay for journalism at the moment, there has been a huge spike in people looking out high quality reporting and actually trusting it. So you, you'll also hear lots of words of doom about how journalism is no longer trusted. That's part of that whole fake news thing, isn't it? That's why that phrase is so unpopular, because it's Yes, it kind of pits it journalism as the enemy of the truth, it doesn't it? It is. And we have and we yeah. have leaders around the world, including in America, which should be the really sort of holding the ring on press freedom and is, is no longer doing that. And in the UK, I'm afraid, that actually will undermine legitimate reporting yeah, for their own, the their own yeah. means. And actually, sort of, this has been going on for years in dictatorships. You know, any, anyone who comes from a place run by an anti, you know, sort of a, an anti-free press dictator knows the playbook. And now we now it's showing up in Western democracy where you have these authoritarian style leaders because the playbook. You know, I mean, you were talking Tanya earlier about you know how old is this. If you you know you go back to Nazi Germany and look at you know you look at Goebbels and the sort of the propaganda mm, playbook mm. that they came up with, it's exactly the same as everything yeah. you've seen that you know as, as everything you've seen now. And people people react badly to that because it's like you can't. People say, well, you can't compare 
the Conservatives, you can't compare Trump, you can't compare sort of, you know, left-wing governments, you know, Maduro or whatever, to the Nazis. But, but in the use of, of that sort of kind of brainwashing and inversion, what they call inverting the truth. So there's a great philosopher in the States called Jason Stanley, who works at Yale, who wrote a book that I highly recommend, although it's quite dense, called How Propaganda Works. And what Jason says is, you know, the playbook's always the same. You invert the truth and you discredit the press. So yeah, you say yeah. fake news, mainstream media is, you know, lamestream yeah. media. Media is um, the enemy of the people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What, what we've run into with coronavirus, though, is you can, if you are Donald Trump, politicise the idea of wearing a mask. You can have a sort of an encourage a sort of a political stance but you you can't hide the fact that people are dying and you can't hide the fact that hospitals in places like texas that have been you know slow to adopt some of the all all, that they were early to open up are now seeing their hospitals overwhelmed these are just facts that you can't escape from and so I think that this is a really interesting moment for this. So you do say. you think this could end up being good news for news then, the pandemic and the infodemic? I, I, well, OK, so, so again, you know, kind of it's already been described as a, as a potential extinction event for news, which doesn't sound great, I have to say. But I think it could be good news in, in a couple of dimensions, one of which is I think it has made everybody really focus on what happens when news goes away what happens when you don't have a local paper in your community to tell you what's going Mm. on in the local hospital Mm. what happens when you can't go to the new york times the washington post the guardian the telegraph well i leave telegraph out of this but when you can't go to you know mainstream news outlets and find out whether the figures you're being given are the right figures yeah are the right figures where you can't people are starting to understand and and hopefully fingers crossed what this will do is is help us inject some political will into a movement that's been going for some time that says we have to find a different way we either have to tax the platforms to have them reinvest in independent journalism we have to redesign maybe public media we certainly have to have better guardrails on social platforms so that we're not seeing you know so, so that we can actually know where things are coming from and who made them and, and what have you i try not to get too hopeless about this because i was really pessimistic about this five or six years ago and it turns out i was not pessimistic enough <laughs> so, <laughs> so so and i think the other thing that has changed is that three or four years ago i heard a lot of rhetoric from often people in silicon valley saying journalism do we really need journalism you know just let it go away and something better will replace it do and we I really think... need independent investigations and yes fact checking gosh yes. that's an yes. interesting question it's an interesting question because because the, the, the move <laughs> in silicon valley was journalism is flawed which it certainly is if you let it all go away and just replace it with data sets and users and better machines, do you really need journalists anymore? Uh, well, it's that um, old argument, isn't it? Are machines it better is. than people? It yeah. is. It is. And, and I mean, the answer is just yes, because, you know, it's like the police. I mean, people say, oh, well, journalism should be like parks. Uh, you know, it should be something that we pay for because everyone likes to have them in the community. I'm afraid that I, I take a slightly darker view and say that actually journalism are, journalism is a watchdog function and it's much yeah, more like the yeah. police. 
And and like the police, it has all sorts of issues about how it's made up, who it's representing, how it reports on them. But we still need it. We don't. With all those flaws, we still need it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we might need it to look very different from how it looks right now. But the idea that you wouldn't have that function in your community is, I think, really sort of very depressing. And if you think about it for two seconds, the thing that would replace it if you said, well, we don't need journalism anymore, would be, I think, a a much worse and scarier version of the surveillance state than the one that Mm. we currently have. So it's one of the things we can do, stop sharing and stop reacting, you know, however difficult that would be, you know, yeah. is, a, is a small thing, you know, if you think about something yeah. that you, we can all make a difference, can we, can we? Right. So, so, so I think that this is fight something. against that. Yeah, this is something you've been great about in terms of, you know, your campaign to get people to spend their attention on things that are better. I mean, I would say there are three things you can do. First of all, I wouldn't say stop sharing, I would say, but make sure the things that you share are really good. And, and yeah. that they are, not just that, stuff that makes you angry. Yeah. Not just stuff that makes you angry. And if you have an impulse, if you read a headline and you're just going to share the article without reading it, don't. Um, so but yes, that's what yeah. the majority of people do. I'm sure we I read do. some stats about how few people read what they share. 70% yeah. of links that we share, we haven't read. And I've God. tried to stop. I have tried to stop because often I find myself sharing things that are by people that I know are good journalists or that look really yeah. intriguing. And I've almost completely stopped, even with my dearest colleagues and closest friends, from sharing links that I haven't read. Um, yeah. So make yeah. sure you read them before you share them. And there's, you know, there's no law that says you have to share. So that's the first thing you can do. The second thing you can do is if there is a news organisation that you think um, you would rather have than not have, and if you can afford it, so if it's your local paper you know, or a national paper or a website that you use a lot and it has an ability to give them money to support them or subscribe to what they do, do that. So- I really like what The Guardian's done. With this, you know, asking people to donate rather than having a paywall. I think that's really clever, really clever doing that. It's it's sort of a membership model. And, you know, I was at The Guardian a decade ago. And for a decade there, we sort of wanted to make our journalism as widely available as possible. And in doing so, we didn't have a paywall, which was a great contentious issue at the time. And I think that this, uh, you know, what what Kath Viner and the team are doing there at the moment is absolutely amazing, which is taking this membership model yeah. And what, what's yeah. interesting, but for anyone who reads The Guardian, the other thing I can tell you, which isn't breaking any state secrets because I'm still sort of pretty heavily involved there, is that those messages that you get at the bottom that say, while you're here, yeah, <laughs> yeah, support um, quality journalism, yeah, are amazingly effective, actually. They are, amazingly yeah. effective. And I think that that's what you need to do, which is, you know, publishers have to be better at asking for money and they have to be better at providing the kind of journalism that people want to pay for. And they have to think very hard about how are they reflecting and serving the communities that they're writing about or that they're filming or that they're extracting sort of any kind of material from. So that's the second thing that you can do. Okay. And then the third thing you can do, which is very tedious, but I find myself doing this more and more, is report accounts that you see which are trolls or bots 
or that are spreading fake news. So if you see something and I go through an exercise with my students where I give them what looks like a legitimate article, but there are all kinds of little red flags like, who actually owns it? Do they have an about page? You know, who's, yeah, who's, yeah. <laughs> is this, if, if you feel that something just isn't, doesn't seem to add up or stack up or if it's really offensive or if it seems to be, you know, kind of written by a person who's very angry and personally attacking you or somebody else, just take a second to hit the flag button or, or hit the report button. Um, is there a billion of those though? What kind of... Yeah impact can we really make on those I think here's the thing which is you know the 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 more these things freely circulate on platforms without anybody raising objections the easier it is for platform companies to say it's not really an issue I think it's really hard when you start to sort of see both you know if, if consumers and advertisers start to abandon these platforms, we're at a really interesting moment with Facebook now. Yeah, yeah, because there's a boycott. Isn't there a boycott going on? There's an ad boycott. Now, you could yeah. say that advertisers, as you know, Tanya, are not um, altruistic people. No. Um, <laughs> and interestingly enough, the pandemic has basically meant that nobody is spending any money on advertising mm. at the moment. So, so it's very convenient. But they have actually started to say places like sort of North Face. I saw the um, camping. Equipment. Yeah, they're the first ones, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, they were saying they were saying we're not going to spend on Facebook until they sort out what they think about things like you know hate speech or yeah. inflammatory political statements from Donald Trump. You know, we, we are in the sort of the cultural phase of our kind of development of civilization at the moment where actually the transparency that attaches and and, and the sort of the, the accountability that goes with it that attaches to companies means that they will start doing things like saying, I'm not going to spend my advertising dollars here. And it may not be motivated by anything other than just a desire to make more money, but I think it will shift the dial a little bit. So I think we can, I mean, it's your question about what can we all do that's a small thing. And as I say, a couple of those things are small and take no effort, one of which is don't share. That's actually, we're asking you to do less. <laughs> yeah, and 70%, I didn't know it was that high. If you told me 30%, but 70% of people share yeah. without reading. I mean, that's yeah. really shocking, isn't it? It is really shocking. And it's and you know how it's done. You absolutely know. You think, oh, yes, you know, come, this yeah. is a big, good piece. Yes, everyone should share that. I get linked yeah. sent to me by lots of journalists going, hey, here's my latest column. Could you give it a boost? Um, and I used to just do that without really thinking. And nine times out of 10, they're excellent columns. But I thought, well, no, I'm just going to stop and read it. And before I sort of signal boost something, it's just a little thing that you can do that, that changes your behavior. But pay for journalism when you can and if you think it's worth paying for. And then, as I say, just sort of be a little bit. The other thing you can do is when you see people saying things that are completely untrue and you're in a Facebook group with them, it's really hard. But but just say to them, you you know that's not true. And I'll give mm. you a great example of this, which is in closed groups, particularly in the UK, actually, this um, 5G conspiracy theory has been circulating. Oh, gosh, yes, that's gone like wildfire everywhere. Well, like wildfire. Yeah. And people, people have, as you say, wildfire, people have been setting fire to telephone masks. Um, <laughs> um, and actually, there, again, there's been some research on this, which says that if you're in one of those groups and people are commenting, so I saw the David Icke video that was propagating this circulating in every single group even though it had been banned from youtube that the, there is research that says actually the most effective 
defence against misinformation is not flagging something with a fact check and saying this is not true, but is actually having a conversation with somebody who believes it to be true mm. and saying, not in an angry way, not like, oh, you idiot, I can't, believe you, I can't believe you're sharing this, but just to say, hey, you know that this is not true, don't you? Here is some evidence. And even if somebody re- sort of doubles down on their position, it introduces enough doubt. So nobody wants to argue with their relatives on Facebook. But if you see something which is not true, it is always worth just putting a little note in the comments saying, hey, yeah. Yeah, you know, you you should read this because I don't think this is a full story. Those are such good and practical tips. Um, thank you. I want to say thank you, Emily. I could. Uh, you've made your whole life and career out of this subject, and I'm trying to get everything out of you in thirty minutes, which is really <laughs> inadequate. I was going to say, more for me for making my life. <laughs> no we need you we need you to keep doing what you're doing so we can get the truth i want to say thank you thanks so much for doing this not at all it's been an absolute pleasure it's been great to speak to you through the the weirdness of the internet which is actually a very good thing it's a force for good it means that people like you and i can have conversations like this and your audiences can uh, hear it you just have to watch out for the fake news yeah thank you so much thank you Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's Complicated. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit itstimetologoff.com. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.